0: Welcome to the Boil Now Coffee Club Podcast. The meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober.
1: I'm Sam.
0: This works for us. Damn it. We're major and... Minor. <laughs> no, Major and Max, the Mayhem Brothers.
1: No. I'm Max. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that one.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll be who I am. I'm Don.
1: Yeah, whatever. Oh, I mean, uh, hi, I'm Sam.
0: Sam, what's shaking?
1: Um. Oh, I remember when Cliff would walk in on the show, cheers, and he said, what's <laughs> shaking, Cliff? All four cheeks and a couple of chins. <laughs>
0: well that sounds good yeah keep it shaking you know i had somebody ask to be on the boiled owl you did at a meeting the other day yeah he wanted to be on i said okay but you've got to be able to cite the reference that the boiled owl where the boiled owl Mm, comes from
1: so many people don't know i
0: didn't know that the boiled owl is that in the big book i was going is it in the big book? You know, I came down on him. I was like, you must not be reading your big book. <laughs> 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 so he said, Well, I oh yeah, yeah, I, I I know where it is. He pulled out his phone and googled it. And it like, it's like, uh, that's way too easy.
1: Well, yeah. You
0: could just look it up. It's true. Do you know where it is?
1: Page 47? No. 57? No. 67? Keep going. 87? No, you
0: got to go higher.
1: 97? Hi. One. 157?
0: 158. You got pretty <laughs> close there.
1: <laughs> okay. I know it's boiled as an owl. Yeah. I know
0: that. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn I'd never touch another drop, but by 9 o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl.
1: Yeah. It doesn't sound like fun. No,
0: but you know, it gave me an idea.
1: Could it be the Thumper Stumper? The
0: Thumper Stumper. I asked if he'd ever listened to the show, and he said no. So, okay, I don't know why he wants to be on, but I said it's a...
1: (laughs) Prestige, no doubt.
0: (laughs) I guess. He doesn't know what he's getting into. I said, well, you know what it really is. It's a game show. That's (laughs) right. You gave him a (laughs) lot.
1: Big old quiz on the big book.
0: Big book quiz. All we do is ask questions, and so I like that. I, I think we got to do it.
1: Yeah. I, well, I mean, so let's let folks in on the magic. So we were having coffee yesterday, and that's when we um, had this conversation <laughs> in line waiting for coffee. And I think we need some like really awesome music here. Yeah, definitely. Dun dun dun! The thumper stumper Stump
0: the thumpers. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so so as y'all can tell, this idea is half baked, but we're working on it.
0: We're baking it. <laughs> we'll put a little bit of bacon. In. That
1: was the little Pillsbury Doughboy.
0: <laughs> I like a little bacon
1: in my biscuit. Oh, God. Thank God we have a guest. We need to end this. Hi, who are you?
2: Hi, I'm Gabby. Hey, Hi. Gabby. Thanks Hi, for Gabby. joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was all very delightful. <laughs>
0: You're used to it. I mean, you, I am. You've been in up uh, in the play that mm-hmm. we. Did. My name is Ebenezer S. A, a Christmas play, a ghostly twelve-step call. Ebenezer S. is an alcoholic, and the ghost twelve-step him to get him sober.
2: And Don, you're just always
0: kind of like this. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, There's
1: that.
2: Yeah, there's yeah. that.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of that. But it's a good thing. It's good. That's good. <laughs> when did you get sober?
2: I got sober, so um, I could never remember my real sobriety date. I picked up a lot of white chips. I knew it was somewhere in, uh, in August. And so when I initially got sober, my sponsor at the time was like, just pick a date that you think is close enough. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So August 12th, 2008.
1: Isn't that tough, though? Because it's that, yeah. that thing of in, in that first year in particular, every single day matters. So picking a date. Well, that just, like, what if I'm cheating myself? And I was like, but I don't I don't really remember.
2: And it's like, you know, I remember, well, not anymore, but I used to remember the first time I picked up my first white chip. But, like, that was not on my sobriety date. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, what was going on that you picked up so many chips?
2: You know, I actually think, in a way, it was the only thing that I did right in the beginning. And... And I still, when I think about it, I'm not totally sure why because it goes against my personality. The truth is I came into the program, but I don't think I was ready. And so I kept relapsing, but like I'm not the kind of person, like I'm a giver-upper kind of person. Like that's always been sort of my personality. Like I try something once and if I'm not immediately good at it, then I stop and I never, ever, ever do it again. Like, I've never been that kind of person who, like, perseveres or, like, keeps trying. But for some reason, I just kept picking up white chips. And it, like, never occurred to me not to. And sometimes I would pick up, like, five in a week. I would relapse, and then I would pick up another white chip and relapse and pick up another white chip. And...
0: Were you trying to not drink or were you not just not, it just wasn't important?
2: (laughs) No, it's.
0: I mean, was there any uh, sense of defeat with like, this is just not working. That's a lot, five in a week.
2: I don't think I'd actually hit my bottom yet. Hmm. I think that I, through that whole process, that whole like year and a half, of like constantly picking up white chips, which kept me close to the program Mm -hmm. as my relapses got worse and worse and worse and new, worse substances were sort of introduced into my story. Um, So the reason I say I think that it's something I did right is I just think that it wasn't my time. But instead of picking up a white chip and then disappearing for a year and then kind of making my way back, I think... I, something inside me said that there's something here. I don't know what it is and I don't understand it and I don't know if I want it, but I'm not ready to completely shut the, like, I want to stay close to it.
0: Did you, did you want to quit drinking?
2: I, not at
0: first. Why did you come?
2: Because I got caught stealing alcohol and pills from my best friend, and she got really mad at me, and so I wanted her not be mad at me anymore. Amazing- I mean, honestly, that was the mm-hmm. reason I went to my first meeting.
1: Yeah,
0: make the problems go away. Yeah,
1: I mean, my going to meetings initially was because I knew that my drinking wasn't right, and I was starting to have consequences from it. I mean, my very first meeting at 18 was, I don't drink right, but there were no consequences. And then at thirty two I came back and the consequences were starting, but I didn't want to quit drinking. I just like, well, this is what you're supposed to do. You guys are supposed to go to AA and so I picked up chips and I picked up chips and I picked up chips and and got sick of picking up chips and <laughs> went out. And
2: <laughs> well, for me, like so in that year and a half that I was picking up chips, like I came like towards my bottom. Like when I first started picking up chips, I definitely was an alcoholic and had a problem. But things escalated so quickly because before then I was able to keep everything from secret. But I think that at some point something inside me was just like, let's do this. Let's, let's hit this bottom because I went... I came in just with like, you know, pills and alcohol. In a couple months, I was doing heroin. Okay. And um with a junkie boyfriend, you know, and alcohol and, and was mixing every single substance, which was something I'd never done before. And, you know, I had to, <laughs> I lived in MacArthur Park for, uh, I think it was like, a little more than a week, not quite two weeks. MacArthur Park is this really kind of notoriously scary, dangerous drug park in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, that's where they someone left a cake out in the
2: exactly. rain. Exactly. Well, now it's not cake as much as it's crack and heroin and everything else. Gotcha. Um, wow. And so I went to MacArthur Park to score and I parked somewhere where I knew I shouldn't park but didn't really care went.
0: You had to get it.
2: And then my car got, pound, got impounded.
0: Oh.
2: And I had no money. Well, I had some money, but I, I wanted to keep that money.
0: <laughs> gotcha. I understand that.
2: <laughs> um, and so I ended up, I ended up actually kind of being adopted by this like alcoholic. There was like, MacArthur Park is really weird. So MacArthur Park is like, like a really dark, twisted high school. There's like all these cliques. There's like this gang and that gang and the people who do these drugs and that drugs and then yeah. way off at the end of the park, there's like the little weird old men alcoholic hermit gang. Wow. <laughs> and they've probably been there the longest and they've made these like little lean-tos out of whatever they could find kind of way in the back um, and and they all kind of have some sort of mental illness or maybe it's the alcoholism or who knows. But Kinda the guy, like
0: the homeless, yeah, the,
1: the stereotypical drunk, yeah, kind of, yeah, the the trench coat under the bridge exactly. type thing, exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought. And like, AA was filled with, yeah, right.
2: And Magi, the guy who sort of adopted me for a week, he said that he'd been living there for like 30, 30 something years. Oh, wow, and I don't even remember, I just know I guess I passed out on a park bench and then I woke up in a weird little lean to. <laughs> And there was a man pacing back and forth outside, which he, I mean, it's funny. It's like even even in your darkest hours and even amongst drunks, like you can still, I feel like, you know, we are still good people underneath all of that.
0: Moments of grace. Yeah. So you're, he took care of you.
2: Yeah, he was, so he was pacing because he was making – he, was, he would stay up all night drinking, and he wanted to make sure that no one um, touched me.
0: Wow. How, so you stayed there a week?
2: A little bit more than that. It took a lot of time to pay and handle to get money to get my car out of Hawk.
0: But you had money.
2: Well, th- and then I meet quickly didn't have money. But, like, yeah. this was Los Angeles. Getting my car out of Hawk was no cheap thing. Oh, wow. And, of course, it kept increasing with every day because yeah. there's like, fees. But, at the time, like, and of course, at that time, I had like this cute little condo in Encino, um, that you just couldn't get to
0: that I just couldn't get to, so you're living in the park, and a, this set uh, this is dysfunctional, it seems like
2: and well, and, I don't
1: know, it sounds pretty fun to me,', yeah, I mean, well,
0: it's a vacation. but the funny
2: thing is like before that, like, before the start of things really went to hell when I went to that first meeting, um and And I'm not it's not at all because of the meeting, but I think it was like I walked in and there was this solution and I knew it was my solution but,
0: you're but I ready.
2: but I didn't want it, mm. but I knew that it was my solution, yeah.
0: and boy, I know that feeling, when and I so walked in, like, that's what happened. It was
2: this year and a half where I packed in so much shit, <laughs> like things just got so bad so quickly and after it's all said and done, like sort of grateful about it. Cause I think I think I needed that. Because even though at the time I don't remember thinking that like I didn't think I was an alcoholic, I don't think I did. I think that, you know, deep down I knew that something was wrong. Right, right. Um
0: You didn't think you were really an alcoholic.
2: And then I really had a problem You're that a problem.
0: You had to learn that. You, you know, we or, all, every one of us learns that by failing at.
2: And I think it at didn't. Drinking. I think I knew I had a problem. I didn't think that it had control over me. Mm-hmm. So I think that I needed this year, where like it became, where like stuff like living in the park, right? And like where it be- it became really clear.
1: You, you knew you were powerless over alcohol and drugs, but you weren't convinced your life was unmanageable.
2: Yeah. Oh, that actually. So even when I got sober. It took me a good two years, two and a half, three years to finally realize, like, like I would read Take My Will in My Life. And I, you know, I know English, I knew the words, I knew what they meant. But I don't think I meant it. Like, I think that I was just like, take drugs and alcohol. Like, I tried so hard to cling to control over my life, especially like my romantic life, which was just absurd because I really had, I had no business But I would go, like, when I was sober the first three years, I would go on these self-will run riot jags that really were like alcohol binges except stone cold sober. Um, You know, where I would not go to as many meetings, kind of, you know, and and just do whatever I wanted and wreak a lot of havoc, actually, and hurt a lot of people. And then I say that I used to use AA as a band-aid for the first couple years. So, like, then after myself, World War Riot Jag, when things, like, hurt so much and I was maybe almost about to drink, I would, like, jump back into the program really hard for a couple months and then I would, like, do it again.
0: Get things a little bit better. Yeah. And Get then take better. control yeah. back. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And uh, finally, I ended up hitting a real bottom with, it. like, a real bottom with that.
0: And... Not a drink. This is not drinking. I did this not system. drink. Yeah. But you hit a bottom with powerlessness,
2: and I could have, like, so. And that was actually when I realized that the truth that there is truth and complete truth. And if you relapse, you don't start at the beginning, you start where you left off. And where I pick up, yeah. And where I left off was wanting to use drugs and alcohol as a means to kill myself. And when I hit this bottom, I started to have those same thoughts. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, and it was because there was this thing with my old sponsor. And and so when I started to have those thoughts, I just like, there was this other, this woman that I wanted to be my new sponsor and she was really busy or something. She wasn't getting back to me. And I, call, <laughs> she used to joke about this. I called her. So much. And finally, after three days, I just showed up in her house and I was, and I stood and I sat. You on,
0: will talk to me. I, I sat.
2: <laughs> I sat on the steps outside of her house and I didn't know that much about her, except that she shared and the stuff that she shared was real. She shared about how she had problems in sobriety and how she got over those problems. And, and I liked that.
1: Now, was she your sponsor when you did this or not yet?
2: No, that she was going to be my going sponsor. To, yes. So you stalked
1: your first sponsor. No,
2: <laughs> she was my second sponsor. But okay, I did, you yeah. stalked
1: your second sponsor. Yeah. Okay.
2: Because, no, this was about, this was about <laughs> three years in, and I had a falling out with my first sponsor. And then, at first, my response after this falling out was, I, like, isolated for a week, and then I started to have some of those same thoughts about how I'm in so much pain. And... I should just drink. And then my other thought was, well, that's not going to take it away. You know that's not going to take it away. What will take it away? Oh, I know. So let's drink and do hills and do that so we can finally die because that's the only thing that will make it stop. And the funny, like, it was word for word, like, the exact same thoughts that I had three years prior, except that time I actually did try to cut myself. And so what I decided to do was instead of trying to kill myself, this time I stalked my second sponsor. (laughs) And I sat outside her house and she came home and she was like, Gabby, I've been meaning to get you back. I was like, I have problems. (laughs) And she like took me inside. And it turns out that she had not, she had the same type of like sober, emotional, like, um, Bottom like five or six years into her sobriety. And I didn't know that at the time. And she was just the perfect sponsor for me to have at that point. And then, in so like, I finally got my pink cloud like then. Like three years in, I was like, oh.
0: Started really <laughs> working it.
2: Yeah. Well, and you really, started, you
0: really gave up. And because I mean, in, in the whole thing is that I don't know how to deal with the world. And so what I what worked for me for twenty years was drinking and drugs. And that got me out of the feelings, mm-hmm. my feelings about the world. So then I quit drinking. I've gotta replace that with something. If I don't replace it with something, I'm gonna go back to drinking. When and it, that's it, what the tools and everything
2: are. And it really is about that first step because like at that point I had already worked all twelve of the steps. But you know how they say the first one is the only one you have to do perfectly, right.
0: which is the first step as we become realize we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. Exactly,
2: and it was that last piece the the lives have become unmanageable. Like I knew that, but I still thought that I could manage it.
1: So there, there was a reservation,
2: exactly. And so even though I did all the work afterwards, if it's built on a flimsy foundation, yeah. it doesn't really mean much.
1: Yeah.
0: What would you say to somebody that's coming, that's in AA and is relapsing and can't get it? What can you say that could maybe help somebody find that place to give hmm. up?
2: So I wish there was something.
1: It's experience, yeah. isn't it? That's my I, experience in it, too.
2: All, all I could yeah. say is, like I said, I do think the fact that I kept relapsing but kept sticking close to the program um, it made my relapses a lot less fun. I'll tell you that like I didn't really have a good time that last year. yeah um, you know I would get it high- your drinking. Yeah I would get high and cry um, but I think I needed that I needed to have like that safety on one hand for me to fully hit my bottom. And realize that I, because I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't willing to give up drugs and alcohol. At the end, I was. So the only thing, and I do say this to people, is I say seriously, like, don't worry about, you know, what people think or whatever. Just, just do, just come back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is one of the biggest things that we have to be is welcoming regardless. Yeah. Uh, it, we are are not punitive. Alcoholics Anonymous, now granted, there are going to be some assholes in meetings from time to time. It happens. Um, and some of them are old timers uh, and um, shame on them. But yes, some of them. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, we are not punitive. We do not shoot our wounded. Um, we want people to come back as... Uh, we want you to come back, period. I mean, some people are never going to make it back, but we want you to come back. Yeah. And... We want the best for you. We want you to get what we've got.
0: There's and no I, judgment with it. There's a, there's that um, one guy that g- gives out chips in Greensboro who used to say, there are no failures here. The only failures are those who don't make it back.
2: Yeah. And that's why it's like we don't have to be punitive. There's no need. Like mm. I wasn't in great shape when I walked into that first, my very first meeting, but... When I picked when I picked up the chip that was like my last chip, I was really not in good shape. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, you didn't need to punish me more. Like I had been punished. Yeah, like.
1: yeah. and not being punitive, you know, I, I I want to to clarify my position on this is, you know, that doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily coddle you either. Um, you know, there are people who need to be loved and 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 just shown to, to be coddled there there are people who need to be held and, and, and such and there are people who need to have a finger wagged in their face and told that you need to get your ass shut up take the cotton out of your ears and put it
0: in your mouth sonny
1: um and um and shut up and listen uh and you know, thank God we've got all these different people who sponsor in all these different styles because you know ultimately we we do wind up finding who fits for us,
2: see, and I needed a combination of the two mm-hmm. um, and now I need something a little different, but then that's what I needed, and so my first two sponsors were very much that. Especially the one who kind of helped me with that second bottom, and I work. I feel like the steps I worked with her, I really worked them. Um, And she, like, she knew when to coddle me and when to like validate my feelings and validate my emotions. Um, But she also knew, like, I came to her and I was a mess, you know, (laughs) and and I wanted to get away with all the stuff that I got away with with (laughs) my old sponsor. Of course, you did, and. Even though she kept reminding, and then, and, and so I got pushing boundaries. I was like a little post-traumatic stress teenager child. And like six months in, she just turned to me and she went, I need you to stop referencing your old sponsor because you look how that turned out. Is that what you want again? And I was like, no. And she's like, and when you come here, we're going to work on the steps if you want to talk and go on and on and on, that's fine. I don't want to hear it. That's not my role. And I like started uh, to cry. Yeah. And she was like, you could cry. It's okay. <laughs> but she like put these really like strict rules. Mm-hmm. And she was very yeah. sweet. But like, she, and she'd been, because I've been driving her crazy. Yeah. Um. And then finally her sponsor was like, it seems like that one needs boundaries. And, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> And the truth is, like, and I find that this is true for most alcoholics. Like at first, when she first started putting down those boundaries, I cried. I was like, no. But I thrived under them. It was exactly what I needed. Yeah, because you know, I would meet with her for an hour.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah, I absolutely hate discipline, and it sure does make my life a lot better. (laughs) Yeah, I hate
2: it, but I fight it every time, even though I know a little bit of like structure.
1: Yes.
0: You said at one point that uh, you can read English, so you know what the words meant, and you know some of these words have. It, Twenty years later, I'm still discovering what the, you know how deep it goes. Yes, what does and, "boiled" mean? Yeah, for example, boiled. <laughs> What's the difference between boiled and braised,
1: and parboiled?
0: Well, that's not really the question, though. Oh, oh question did you have a point? Is, yes, <laughs> I did have a point. And the point is, what does unmanageability mean when, in the first step when it says my life is unmanageable? So it sounds like you had a, a kind of a career of deciding what unmanageable means. What's an example of something that you were doing that was unmanageable? turned out to be unmanageable, but you thought you had it under control until you discovered you didn't. Can you give a specific example?
2: Well done um so I think unmanageability is one of those things where it is it has changed throughout my sobriety too like right. what was unmanageable then like I I wouldn't I could never get to that point of unmanageability. I mean I probably could but like, Right now, my tolerance is a lot higher. So, what's like unmanageable to me now, like old me would have been like, what?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I understand.
2: <laughs> so, when I was in high school, I didn't drink every day, but I would binge every weekend. And I didn't think that it was a problem because I was just drinking on the weekends. Yeah, you and didn't also, drink. but I did realize, and I remember like, Pretty clearly, I remember at one point, I started to see that there were a lot of times that I would drink more than I wanted to, and I would end up messy, drunk, and embarrass myself. I was a 16-year-old girl, you know? I cared about embarrassing myself in front of my peers. But then if I would try to not drink that much, I couldn't really do it.
0: Which is a definition of alcoholism.
2: Yeah this is one thing I did. And this was like, I thought that I wasn't an alcoholic because I was able to manage my drinking. And this is one way that I chose to manage my drinking, which in my opinion is like the most alcoholic way anyone could choose to manage your drinking. Mm. So I discovered at one point that whenever I drank red wine, I got such a horrible, horrible drunk so quickly, so messy. And a lot of times it was so bad that there was like at least a 50-50% chance that I would not want to go out Saturday night because I had such a bad time on Friday night. Not always. I would say 50-50. But so for like most of my senior year of high school, I would like choose to drink red wine and have this horrible time, Friday, just because there was a chance that I would maybe not want to go out and drink on Saturday. But... The unmanageability thing is at the time, ton- like now- Wait a minute,
0: what's the managing there? You're managing, you're your oh, trying like, to keep-
1: No, them. I no, totally see, get like, it. but that's
2: the thing. Like, I felt like I was managing I, it. Don, I you're did. not really
1: an alcoholic. <laughs> I get this. Okay, do you? <laughs> I get, so let me tell you why I get this. It's completely, it's not alcohol, but it's, it's smoking. I grew up with childhood asthma. I used a rescue inhaler all throughout my childhood and into my teens, and then I started smoking because I liked inhaling my inhaler. Yeah. Oh. Okay? a <laughs> mm-hmm. it's lot. Al- it's, it's fucked up yeah. thinking along those yeah. lines. That's what was just described by Gabby. Well, and it was because it was
2: the only thing, like, that would sometimes get me to not want to go out on Saturday. Uh. And that, And that's the thing. Like, now looking back, I'm like, oh, my God. But, like, at the time, like, I... I thought I thought that I was makes, managing it. You, you and were I hobbling I
1: did. yourself. I, think misery.
2: <laughs> I was. Uh, <laughs> but
1: yeah. so that's
2: wow. one mm. example of you know I think you, your life is unmanageable if the ways that you choose to manage your life are just
0: <laughs> absurd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: But for me, for now, unmanageability will often look like just trying to run the show and usually in small, in small ways. Like, you know, if I, if I'm late to work or this or that, my first instinct is, is I want to tell a little lie.
0: Uh-huh.
2: I want to say, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. There was really bad traffic.
0: Yes. Blame or. It on some little thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not me. It's, you know. And,
2: uh, and I say that because that's actually one of the things that I look out for it. Because like when I'm right. spiritually fit, I still have that thought. Like yes. I pull in and I'm still like, okay, this is going to be my little lie. And then I take a deep <laughs> breath and go, okay, no.
0: I'm not yeah, gonna, not going <laughs> to do that. Do you ever lie just to evoke a little sympathy? Like, you know, I I would have been here earlier, but I got a telephone call and was like, 20 minutes. And was, uh, was,
1: you become the victim yeah. because yes. I know that being a victim is one of your things, Doug. No, one
0: it's one of
2: it's one of mine too. I don't do it as much anymore, but I used to a lot.
0: But the impulse mm-hmm. doesn't the impulse, go away yeah. to do it. And I have to work on that. I mean, I ask God every morning in my morning prayer to to remove my victimhood. I call it because I would like to call it martyrdom, but that mm-hmm. makes it too heroic. That's so <laughs> it's
2: funny terrible. though. Don, I didn't know <laughs> that we had this thing in common. Yes. So when I did my second four step, the one that mainly was stuff I'd done in sobriety, those self-woman riot jacks, one thing became abundantly clear that I just love playing the victim. I yes. love it.
0: Yes.
2: And so one thing that I always have to watch out for, cause is a justifiable resentment. So, if someone does something to me that truly is not cool, I will hold on to it, nurse it, and then, like, it will breed. I will be like, let's have, like, (laughs) and then... (laughs) Yeah. And I will before I know it, because that's what I did, I will start creating little situations where I can be the victim here and here. And then old resentments come up and I'm like, Yes, let's fan mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. It's
0: because build, it's like building a fire.
2: When I look, <laughs> when I looked at this fourth step, like my part in basically everything, one one point of my part was played the victim I was like Jesus it's like a hobby
1: I was like what it is, is well, yeah I guess yeah. now would be a bad time for me to tell y'all that I'm a victimizer <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um
2: but no the instincts will always be there I think I had a sponsor kind of explain it to me this way and this is how I explain it to other people that we're always going to be who we are and we're always going to have defects and assets and all of that and yeah so a lot of times we're still gonna have that first thought which is oh it's a lie to get out of trouble Mm -hmm. or you know something like that but then what the program teaches you is you actually have your first thought your second thought and your first action and then in your first action you can choose whether or not you want to act on that first thought or that second thought.
1: Yes, yeah, I love that. Absolutely, you can't get rid, you,
0: we don't necessarily get rid of the impulse, no. but we can get rid of the behavior yeah. and act on it. And it be, it becomes easy. I mean, we make it well, sound yeah. like it it doesn't go away. Well, but it, oh, it's a
1: lifelong process. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it's for my experience on it. I've I've said that you know I'm powerless over the first thought popping into my head. I have access to power in the second thought. Mm-hmm. And that's where, so it's, I mean, we're saying the same thing different totally.
0: ways. The, I was thinking that the. I don't, I no longer really think about my life being unmanageable and unmanageability, but I think all the time about powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I put my focus on onto that question, because
1: there is always a little bit more letting go to do. There is, but I've got a question for you. Is powerlessness the same thing as being a victim? No. No. I agree. Mm, I agree. Yeah. So it, I was like, not, wait, this, he's taking too long oh, to answer. Oh, I got
0: you. I got you because <laughs> it feels like that when you first so, get sober. So, so You're just asking like, me to be a rag. Yeah,
1: just like we might conflate or, or confuse uh, humility with uh, being humiliated. Which happens. Um, exa- yeah. You know, people would also, I can see the confusion yeah. of powerlessness being conflated or, or confused with being a victim. Right. And that's yeah. not what we're talking it's about not. here.
0: And that's the hardest thing for me because I was so concerned. Like, letting go of things where my ego is involved, If it's like a, a point of principle, a point of pride that I need to defend. And so am I not supposed to defend myself? And if I'm going to be powerless, does this mean that... I am not going to defend myself when people say bad things about me or what, But, you know, so much of the time, I really don't need to. If I am living one day at a time, if I make a mistake, I correct it right then, and I know that's the way I'm living, then someone can have a bad opinion about me. Well, that's their opinion about me. But I know that I'm living one day at a time correcting. You know that's not the way I'm living. Now that it is the way I used to live. Mm-hmm. And and so that rises up and that's why I feel like I have to defend it. But if I'm really staying in the present moment, I don't need to defend myself because my life is my example.
2: Yeah. See, I think see that's very wise and spiritual. Sometimes what I do is I've like learned how to use some of my defects, like to help me in a sense. So it's like if someone is talking, is saying bad things, I want to defend myself. But then I also know that I actually, there's been a bunch of times in the past where I've tried to do that and it didn't go well because it just, You don't seem sincere when you're Mm. constantly trying, like, and so I try to remind myself of that, and then, but there's still that little ego part that's like, so what, I'm just going to let them win? So then I tell myself, it's okay, no, I'm going to hold my head high, and I am the better person, and I'm going to be the bigger man, (laughs) and they're going to see it, and I'm just going to walk by the bigger man, what, that's
1: right.
0: Right? So then you just moved into pride. Well, you know, so one of the the best things...
1: (laughs) One of the best things that I learned in these rooms, you may be right. (laughs) I love to say you may be right. And I'm done. I just said that you're wrong, but you heard that I said that you're right. And all I said was that you may be right. Now, yeah, it's playing and my my pride's involved in all that shit too, but it diffuses a situation. It lets someone think that you are giving them the possibility of being right even though when I'm saying it, I'm really saying you're full of shit.
2: See, and for me, it's like when I am being the bigger man, they don't know, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's just that little thing that m- helps me get through that like couple hours yeah. where there's that part in me that just keeps ruminating over it and ruminating over it and ruminating over it. That like stops the rumination. Good. And then I pray yeah. and then I'm done and I don't remember
0: it the next time.
1: And, and that's that that ruminating is the refeeling exactly. of a resentment. Rehearse that, it. Yes. Don't See, nurse it. Don't curse it. Don't rehearse it. Yes.
2: know I do need to say that, and you somewhat, people have probably already talked about this on the show, but when I came in, I actually didn't, like, so I did have anger. I didn't think I had a lot of it. A lot of it was because um, I have a father who at a point in time was, was very angry. And so anger has actually, whereas for some people, anger was like the easiest emotion for them to access. Sad was the easiest emotion for me to access. Anger was a scary emotion. Mm -hmm. I had, I, you know, if I got angry, I felt like I was being like him, big and scary, and I didn't want to. And I just associated it with, with scary. So you I didn't. Could,
0: you couldn't access your anger.
2: I didn't. I, and I didn't really want to.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I, I got gotcha. you.
2: I'd rather be sad about it. Mm-hmm. But so when the whole resentment thing came up and it was sort of explained at first like anger, I was like, well, but I'm not, I'm not really angry. But then when it was expressed like that re feel, mm-hmm. and it's like, so is there an event that you keep replaying? Over and over and over and over in your head. And there was a lot. And I was like, yeah. Like, that's... I was like, but I'm not angry about it. I just can't stop thinking mm-hmm. about it. So, so you're
0: saying for a definition of resentment it was, what's, what are you angry at? And you're saying not... Because when I first came in, I didn't know what resentment was <laughs> at all. I mean, it was just... It was a new word to me. And... The idea that it's recent emotions—it's like I'm refeeling the same mm-hmm. thing again—explains it
2: exactly. And I think it because I just thought it meant anger, um, yeah. which was what, and I was like, "Oh, I don't really have that much." <laughs> and so it needed to really kind of be explained to me that it's not—it's not just anger at all. It's that that feeling
1: And this is why it's a really good idea to work with a sponsor. Oh, I know. <laughs> Self-taught recovery doesn't really work.
0: Gabby, what's your, what's your program today? What do you do today to stay sober? So
2: what I try to do, and I usually do a pretty good job, and this helps me stay sober, but I also have a lot of anxiety. I'm an anxiety person, and because I'm also an addict, I am someone who doesn't take any medication for anxiety because it's not any, it's not safe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, the addictive
0: kind. Mm-hmm. So you've proven that it doesn't work. You've probably experimented some.
2: Well, I used to <laughs> abuse it like back in the day. Right. So when I got sober and I went to see a psychiatrist and psychologist, because I do have to say that I am totally all for those kinds of help. They help beautifully with things like mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, A helps with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And but if you're having other issues, then Get other help. people yeah, and other help. And so I, I've i gone to both of those things and used both of those things to help deal with things other than my alcoholism. But the truth is, it's all connected, so it all kind of helps. Mm-hmm. My learning how to deal with my so- with my social anxiety really started with the program, actually. And it started with beginning stages of prayer, which for me was actually just singing along to like certain songs that had like prayer messages in them well like watched. um
0: Oh yeah, that's good.
2: Like oh it was not Sweet Baby James, James Taylor wasn't that song. It was fire <laughs> it was fire and rain. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That looked down upon me Jesus. You got to help me make a stand. Mm-hmm. Something like that. My body's mm-hmm. aching. And I would cry in my car. <laughs> And re- and keep like pressing play on the C D thing in my car so that little verse would go over and over again. I cry and sing it and cry and sing it. And that was my prayer at first because I didn't feel comfortable doing anything else. So that's
0: really good. I like that a lot. But Because that that song is a prayer. So I could it's asking for help is what he's doing in that song right there.
2: And so a lot of that still stays. So like one of the things that I do most weeks is I still have a collection of those songs. The songs that kind uh, of
1: spoke to you me. You got a playlist.
2: Yeah.
0: And I'll... Okay, well let's hear some of the songs. Can you <laughs> can you name a few?
2: Okay, well there's some they're so weird some of them. Uh, that's
1: okay. Oh, um, Don is all about weird. Yeah.
2: There's Fire and Rain and Let It Be, which is an obvious one, but mm-hmm. I just really like it. And this song I can't uh, it's a Rufus Rainwright song. And I can't think of the name of it right now. Cheap Trick.
0: Oh, yeah, they're spiritual.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> the no, they surrender, surrender, but don't give yourself away.
1: Okay. So, with you calling all these, I got to share <laughs> the Black Eyed Peas, let's get it started in here, is totally a recovery song.
2: Yeah, wow. I can see that.
0: Uh huh. <laughs> Gabby. Send Sam a playlist of about four or five things, and let's post a playlist of... Gabby's spiritual songs.
2: I can do that. (laughs) Spiritual songs. So I try every day to have a little bit of meditation. Now, it works best if it's before I start my day. I don't always do that. And so if I don't do it in the beginning, then I always try to end my day. And usually it can be listening to a song. I also have some like deep breathing and relaxation that I do. Um, I try to stay connected. I have some amazing women in this program. Connected
0: Um, to AA. mm -hmm.
2: And so I try to go to, I try to go at least two or three meetings a week. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And I've been meeting with
0: my sponsor every week. What is, not what you try to do, but what is your regular what does it end up being as most
2: most most of the time my routine is I go to a meeting on Monday go to a meeting on Friday I am communicating with um my girls and other people in recovery kind of throughout the week I'm doing some daily meditation deep breathing and Uh I'm meeting with my sponsor most like Wednesday or Thursday it switches Uh and we have been doing actually
0: counts as a meeting to
2: me (laughs) and we have been doing this really horrible yet wonderful thing we're I'm actually working through a different program's steps. Which uh-huh. program? Adult Children of Alcoholics. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. And and that's kind of at the It's p- just diving
0: deeper is what you're doing. Yeah.
2: And I'm at the point where that's what is helping me the best. I have this amazing sponsor who's in AA and ACA. Mm-hmm. And it's intense because it's all about like your family dysfunction. Yeah. Okay. It's like really super intense. It can be painful. Um, makes dealing with my mother a
0: little harder. Now? <laughs> yes. Ultimately it'll be better. Ultimately
2: <laughs> it will totally be better. But I'm in those early stages. Yeah. So I'm like starting
0: four. This is what my idea with the with uh taking a personal inventory was was if I do this. I mean, this could be horrible because I'm going to stir up the lake. Like all the mud settles down to the bottom of the lake. And then you start stirring it all up. It's going to be awful. But that's what you got to do. That's
1: why when I did my first fourth step, that first big one, Mm -hmm. that uh, that I would go to a meeting after working on it. Because I knew I was stirring up shit. So it was really good for me to go, go to a coffee shop two hours before a meeting and work on my fourth step and then go to a meeting.
2: See, I actually would do some of the work on my fourth step at a meeting because at least some of like the hard stuff, because I found it was the only time that I would actually do it. It's like I needed to be somewhere where I knew I was safe. All right. And then all of a sudden I was able to write it. Cool. But if it was outside or not, and this wasn't true for all of it, but especially some of the stuff that was really hard for me to like look at. And I would just kind of sit in the corner with my little journal And I would pay attention to the meeting a little Uh bit, and I would work on my fourth step because I
1: felt like I could. Oh, I heard a speaker sometime in the past two or three years who uh, her first fourth step, they handed her. She went to the meeting, (laughs) and they handed her a legal pad and a pen and stuck her over on the back row and said, write your fourth step during the meeting. She she had her meeting. The meeting was the time period to do it. That's another case of
0: structure being good. Oh yeah, Yeah. really.
2: (laughs) But yeah, but so that's usually what my day looks like. So I'm a social worker, and this is uh, I think about powerlessness too. So um, and I go and do home visits, and I found really early on that like my want to control can come out like crazy. You know, I have a patient, and they have uncontrolled diabetes, and I just want to be like, you need to eat better. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm yelling at this older man, like, check your blood sugars. (laughs) And and I get really ego personally invested in
0: it Mm. sometimes, you know. here's That's got to be a hard thing with that kind of work.
2: Well, what helps that? I don't mind getting personally invested. I don't like when I get like ego invested because then it's like I'm going to prove you right and it's like, no, wait, why am I in a fight with Mm, this like old sick man? So I do a little prayer before I go. And my little prayer before I go into any meeting is um, something along the lines of please tell me the right thing to say, the right time to say it, put the words in my mouth.
1: Asking for guidance. Yeah.
2: It's and important. guide me and love me and help me to know when I need to shut up because I'm not always good at that. And when I do that, which now I do most of the time, my meet my visits usually go very well. And sometimes I like I love those little foxhole prayers and I think that's that's always a part of my recovery, you know, and I love the bathroom stuff. Box home prayers. I'm a huge fan. I still do it now. You know, if I'm in a situation, I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling, I just go, you know, I just have to pee. And then I go into the bathroom and I kneel and I say a little if prayer. You're
0: asking for guidance during the day. And
2: I'm taking a break. And yeah. yeah. And so, so I, Gabby, I would say that's my usual.
0: That I, I've got so many questions. But <laughs> we've got to take a question for the old timer.
1: That's true. Watch out. Duck. I mean, owl. <laughs> it's time for our old-timers question. Who
0: are calling an old-timer? You.
1: Yes. You can tell her. You're
0: calling me an old-timer? She yes. Is, <laughs> they're ganging up on me. That's what
1: happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, no are you, wait, matter how long you've been you're sober. Fainting there. It's still
0: one day at a time, time, time
1: oh, there's just a, a shadow of a bony finger pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> you can post a question for us on boiledowlaa.org. What an um, image. <laughs> so I just I want to preface this question with the statement that I choose these questions before we begin re- recording an episode. Mm-hmm. And it, it really gets me sometimes how perfect the question is for the episode. Um, So this is from Jason via the internet. Jason wrote, Hello, I just found the boiled owl and am halfway through the back episodes. Up until three months ago, I had nine years of sobriety. Though I have not had alcohol, I cannot be considered uh, sober. Diet pills, etc., exact same story as you tell. Aside from the first two years during which I got my life back and was really into the program, I got sober at 24, full of vim and vigor, I never really assimilated into the community. I know this fact is what led to my current state. So long story short, what can you recommend to get past the pervasive feeling of being different apart from our fellows? The promise of losing fear of people never left. What would you tell to people who just can't get rid of that apartness? Like many of us, I damaged some brain cells, I think. What happens if that feeling of I had arrived never comes? I can't express enough gratitude for you guys for getting the seeds back germinating. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for the letter. Yeah, Jason, that's a, that's a tough letter to yeah. write, and it was hard to read, too. Yeah. Um, we're glad that we can be here for you. Don? I can certainly identify with it
0: particularly the apartness. But first, the idea that it won't work. I one time had a spot C who came into AA when he was 65 years old, maybe 67 years old. And at one point, I was giving him a ride to the meeting. He was from another part of the country, and he had moved to this area. He felt totally apart, and he just felt like there's no way that he can get sober. And he said, Don... I really like AA, and I like what you're doing and, what, and all that you're trying to do, but I think I'm just too old, and I don't think that the program will work for someone at, at this stage of my life. And I was going, no, that's not true. <laughs> I, I know it feels that way, but it will work for you if you surrender to it, and, and he did. He died about five years later. And he was sober. He shared the greatest stuff. I love that guy. I never have forgotten him. He was convinced that it couldn't work for him. And the example of all the people around NAA that are sober and are continuing to stay sober is... All that we need to hold on to to believe it can work. It's entirely an inside job, though. The feeling of being apart is something that I really identify with because I do it. I've always felt apart and could not connect. There's a couple of things to that. One is I do it to myself. Mm. There is a strong element of me doing it to myself. I choose to be a part. And an example that happened to me rather recently was in the last year or so. I was going to a meeting on uh, a different night of the week than when I go. And I just started going to the meeting because I got a sponsee who went to that meeting regularly. And I thought, okay, I'm going to mix it up and I'm going to check out this meeting regularly. So I was going every single Thursday night. And I was driving to the meeting one time, and I said in my mind, I'm going to Steve's meeting. And I was going, why am I calling it Steve's meeting? (laughs) Don, you've been going to this meeting for a year. I went every single week for a year. And I went, I'm holding myself apart from the meeting. Hmm. And I went in with an entirely different attitude. And when I went in, I just started shaking everyone's hands like it was my meeting, and that's where I belong. And everyone responded to that. People in AA will give you all the room in the world if you are putting off vibes that you want to be left alone. Don't talk to me. People will leave you alone. It's true. If you're giving off vibes that you're there and you belong there, people will accept you in. So you have to put out your hand. But then the other thing about this is that there are situations where people need help other than AA. And in that case, going to a therapist or a psychologist is what's in order to get help and let the therapist or psychologist decide if maybe some drugs are in order to help with that. I think Gabby can speak to this.
2: I can. My answer is actually going to be a little different, though. Um, My second sponsor, Amanda, there was one piece of, I don't know, advice or suggestion, whatever. I mean, there was a lot of great things that she did, but there's this one thing in particular that, like, changed my life. So I came to her because I had this sort of traumatic experience with, with my old sponsor. And it was a big thing, and I didn't want to talk about it to anybody, and it was kind of killing me, and she was like, you need to talk about it to these people, and I was like, okay, but, because at that point, I had just sort of been on the surface socially of AA, and I was like, okay, Amanda, wait, so you want me to walk up to these people who I've known now for like three years, but never really talked to you about anything deep, and go, excuse me while I vomit all this C-R-A-P on your lap. And she looked at me and said, "Yes, yes, that is what I want you to do." and I said, "No, i can't I can't. like do you understand how hard that is?" And she looked at me and with complete sincerity, said, "'No, I really do know how hard and how scary do it anyway."
1: Mm.
2: And that idea of do it anyway, okay." You know, I still feel apart sometimes. I'm sitting in meetings and who knows why, and I still feel apart. Do it anyway. Go up, talk to people, introduce yourself. Because I think for me, what I realized, it's like if I'm waiting for that magic moment Mm. where I suddenly want to or where it's suddenly going to seem easy at first, that's just not going to happen for me. But what always happens is when I just do it anyway. Always. I'm like, oh, well, this is like fine. (laughs) Like, like I don't know what the issue was. And so for me, it was really about, you know, the action. Cause like my brain, oh my God, my brain hates me so much. My brain gives me a headache. Um, My brain just likes to overthink and overthink and overthink and overthink and turn everything all around. You know, how do I know that I've surrendered? What is surrendering? You know, (laughs) I think I've surrendered, but have I really surrendered? And it was Amanda who just made it all so simple. She was like, you've surrendered because you've done the actions and you're moving on to the next step. There you go. And so for me, I need to do whatever I can to stick in action and not really like let my brain go. Another thing that Amanda gave me is she's like, So, okay, so your brain says something and that's fine. And then you just say, Thank you for sharing. And then you do, and then you go into an action. So it's like you feel apart from, Okay, how about let's not focus
0: on that right now, though?
2: But it also says, Focus to, on the action. Yeah. And it also says to me that, like, you don't can, focus
0: on the emotion.
2: You can still socialize even if you feel awkward. Mm-hmm. It's okay, especially you know, in AA. It's okay. But it's like you don't need to wait for that moment where you feel confident. You can just do it anyway.
1: Yeah, to act as if. Yeah. Act as if. You know, for me, it's one of those things that, um, first of all, in early recovery, well, actually not in early, early recovery, but after three and a half years of recovery, I uh, wound up traveling the world for four years, going to all these countries where I had to at least have a cocktail party with 24 or more people that I didn't know, uh, often a dinner as well. And I had to do this social stuff and I hated it. Mm. And I got a lot of practice at it. So that helped a lot. But one of the things that hits me on this is that, you know, if you're brand new to AA... People, hopefully, are going to be welcoming when you come in the room. They're going to invite you to do things, stuff like that. But after you've been around for a while and you've said no for three years, Mm -hmm. They're they're not going to continue doing that. And so it's up to me to step up and say, I want to be a part of and this, that, and the other. And I cannot believe that it took me 16 years in these rooms to get this clarity. And I got it from my home group. My home group is young people. And John, who's been on the show, is who is so good at approaching people coming into our home group meeting. And he makes sure that people are, he talks to other home group members saying, go go talk to them. And he sits at times and watches to make sure that no one is not being talked to. And what I finally got clear on is that if I treat my home group meeting as if these are people who are guests in my home, then I'm going to be a part of because I'm going to be trying to make sure that they know that they're welcomed. I'm going to be speaking to people that I don't know. Welcome to my home group. Hey, how long have you been coming around? Does it come naturally? Hell no. Is it something that I want to do? Not really. Mm -mm. But it has made my experience of being in this particular home group the best experience I've had of being in a home group. That's great. All right, Gabby, I'm glad you joined us. Thank you. Me too. Where's that pesky owl? Oh, there he is. Watch. That's a maniacal owl. Yeah, I was like, that
2: sounds like an owl slash witch coming through a wind tunnel.
1: Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services.
0: and rain could you sing a little fire and rain
1: i've seen
2: fire and i've seen rain that's me i'm doing that
0: (laughs) you have a very deep voice naturally but that was very deep